Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of California. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Larry McNabney was born and raised in Nevada, and his venture into adulthood wasn't the easiest. According to the book Marked for Death by author Brian Karam, Larry learned that alcohol was a quick personality changer for him. To remedy his shy and serious nature, he'd take a couple of drinks and Cinderella himself into a high-functioning, charming, quick-witted, and sarcastic guy. To him, he felt like alcohol turned him into a better version of himself. In the late 1960s, Larry went off to college and arguably did really well, but while he was working towards his bachelor's degree, tragedy came at his life from every possible angle. His brother came home from Vietnam, but the adjustment was hard and he turned to drugs and ultimately died of a fatal overdose. Not being able to stand the loss of his son, Larry's father took his own life three months later. With the loss of his brother and his father, Larry was wrecked. He decided to reevaluate who he was and what he wanted out of his life and became more motivated than ever to help other people. With that, he enrolled into law school and by 1974 graduated near the top of his class, passed both the California and Nevada bar exams, and became an attorney. Just to add this in here, Larry had been married in the early part of his education, which, though it didn't work out, resulted in two kids, a daughter and a son, whom he adored. Just before his graduation from law school, he married his second wife, a single mom, whose daughter he adopted as his own. With Larry's life on track, his first job as an attorney was as a deputy public defender out of Washoe County, Nevada, and he crushed it. According to Dateline, he was vivacious and commanded the courtroom. He was also extremely organized and detail-oriented. After three years of being a deputy public defender, Larry decided to start his own law firm, but he didn't do it alone. He did it with none other than Air Force General Ron Bath, who had gotten his law degree just a year after Larry did. The two took on several high-profile criminal cases, and Bath told author Brian Karam that Larry was probably the smartest, quickest lawyer I've ever been around. He was a magic man. Larry was faster on his feet drunk than most people were sober. Alcohol was still a looming shadow over his life, and unfortunately, Dateline reports that from time to time, Larry would disappear for a couple of weeks on an alcohol bender, which as you can imagine, wasn't exactly conducive of being a good law partner or husband. Both Bath and Larry's wife had a mini-intervention with him in the early 1980s, and he agreed that it was time to go to rehab. After his treatment was over, Larry was back to his above-average self, but this time he was sober. Bath and Larry's wife were relieved, but Larry's marriage didn't survive in the long run. The two got divorced about two years later. Larry tried his hand at marriage another two times, but both times failed. His friend told Dateline that Larry struggled with women, saying it was like a void he was trying to fill and he never could fill. Sober but single, Larry did his best to try and make the law firm everything he dreamed it would be, 
But in 1985, more tragedy struck. His law partner, Bath, was ejected out of an F-4 jet, breaking his back and leaving him unable to work. The firm struggled to stay afloat and Larry was forced to find another job, this time working as a special deputy district attorney. He did that for two years until he accepted a role on the opposite side as a defense attorney in one of Nevada's most infamous cases against a drug cartel. In that case, he and at least 10 other defense attorneys defended 12 people who ran an interstate cartel known as The Company. The company ran a multi-million dollar operation where they manufactured and sold methamphetamines in addition to a marijuana plantation in Northern California. Like many cartels are, the company was known for their violence. According to the LA Times and AP News, they killed a disloyal member and attempted to kill two others. They also tried to kill a United States Forest Service employee, shot at a low-flying police helicopter, planned the murders of state and federal narcotics agents, and witnesses. The trial for the company began on January 19th of 1988 and wound up lasting more than 16 months, making it one of the longest federal drug trials in U.S. history. When all was said and done, there were more than 30,000 pages of transcripts, with the prosecution producing thousands of exhibits, presenting evidence of over 2,000 narcotic transactions spanning an 11-year period. In summary, it was massive. During the trial, Larry told the Los Angeles Times, If I would have known this was going to go so long, I wouldn't have taken the case. I've gone through a lot of personal changes. I'm not saying it's directly the result of this trial, but the pressure had sped things up. I think I'm going to quit practicing after this is over. Seriously, maybe I'll play the flute or take a year off and do nothing. If I never set foot into a courtroom again after this, it'll be too soon. In May of 1989, all 12 defendants were convicted of 65 of the 71 counts against them. When the trial was finally over, Larry did exactly what he said he was going to do. He took a break from practicing law, and while doing that, he fell in love with a woman named Cheryl. Though Larry had been married several times before, he and Cheryl never did. After taking three years off, Larry was ready to get back in the game and opened his own personal injury law office in Reno, Nevada. He also opened two additional offices in Las Vegas and Elko. According to Oxygen, he got right back at it, taking on high-profile cases and putting out commercials where he'd ride a horse and wear a cowboy hat. I would expect absolutely nothing less from a law firm commercial. At that point in his life, it was 1995 and 46-year-old Larry's career seemed to be exactly where he wanted it to be. He needed some help around the office, so he put an ad in the paper for a secretary. It wasn't long before a 29-year-old woman named Elizabeth Barash, who went by Elisa, showed up ready to apply and Larry hired her on the spot. According to Oxygen and Dateline, Larry told his daughter that Elisa was brilliant and bright, fun and vivacious, a word that was once used to describe himself. On top of all of that, Elisa seemed to handle things, which took a huge weight off of his shoulders. Little did he know, Elisa was lying about everything. Her name wasn't even Elizabeth Barash, it was Loren Sims Jordan, and Loren was a con artist. Thank you. 
Loren was born in Attleboro, Massachusetts, but raised in the small southern town of Brooksville, Florida. From the very beginning, author Brian Karam writes that Loren's parents tried their best to raise her right, but she didn't make it easy for them. Her mom told Karam, We tried. I don't want anyone to think we didn't, but Loren didn't like being told what to do and her attitude became harder to control as she got older. Loren hated living in a small town and wanted more. Lorenz seemed to stand out around town, Karem writing that some people described her as breathtakingly beautiful, while others pulled out all the petty stops and said that they didn't think she was much to look at. The one thing everyone could agree on was that she was conniving, clever, and able to con anyone. Lorenz's brother Jason said that half of Lorenz's problem was that she was so good-looking. She could shake her body at a guy and he'd come running like a puppy dog. Lorenz's friends agreed, adding that she could sweet-talk or con her way out of anything. But there was more to Loren. She was extremely intelligent. Though growing up, she'd had a habit of skipping school, she still managed to be at the top of her class. That being said, she did have behavioral problems when she was there. Loren's teachers described her as moody, distant, and stubborn, though through her classmates' eyes, she was outgoing and rebellious. Loren wrote some bad checks as a teen, and after she was caught, her parents took her to a psychiatrist. They tested her IQ, and it wound up being 140. It was now official that Loren was incredibly intelligent. But knowing didn't change anything. Her rebellion was in full effect, and before she could graduate high school, she dropped out. In May of 1984, when she was 18, Loren Sims got married to a man named Virgil and became Loren Jordan. Their marriage didn't last long, but it did result in a daughter. In a relationship a few years after that, she had a son with another man. After the demise of her first marriage, Loren got to business scamming people. Over the next 12 years, Loren used at least 38 aliases, and they were totally random. At one point, she was Melissa Goodwin, and at another, she was Tammy Keelan. According to Oxygen, she racked up a criminal rap sheet 113 pages long, with charges like credit card fraud, grand theft, and parole violations. By the late 1980s, Loren's brother told author Brian Karam that she started dating losers, one of whom talked Loren into going to his ex-wife's house to steal presents from under the Christmas tree. The boyfriend told Loren that the presents were actually his and he was going to give them to his children. Seems like a no, but Loren went with it. She agreed to get the presents, but when she did, got caught and was arrested for grand theft. Brian Karem wrote that Loren was pretty upset about the situation, feeling like she'd been held accountable for a crime that was her boyfriend's idea. At that point, she decided from then on out, if anyone was going to suffer, it wasn't going to be her. She'd never let a man get one over on her again. As dramatic as that sounds, in the end, all Loren got was probation, but Loren hated being told what to do and probation was not her style at all. One day, she violated it by going to a hockey game in Tampa, one of the dumbest things she could have done because her whole ass probation officer was also there. Thanks to her brand new probation violation, Loren spent the following nine months in jail. You might assume that she would have used those nine months to reflect on her life choices and think about making a change for the better, but that was also not her style. Not long after her release, Loren stole someone's credit card and used it. 
She was caught and arrested, and that time she was ordered to wear an ankle monitor. I mean, if she wanted to continue being on probation instead of being behind bars again. By early 1993, Lorraine was feeling more trapped than ever, so she decided to go on the run. She wanted to head west and seek fame and fortune, which seems like the exact opposite thing you'd want to do if you were trying to lay low from the law, but Lorraine does what Lorraine wants. Knowing she needed to change her name since police would be looking for Lorraine Jordan, Lorraine thought back to her old cellmate's name, Elizabeth Barash, and went with it, shortening it to Elisa. Lorraine had made sure to memorize her old cellmate's social security number, you know, in case she ever needed it. Now that Lorraine, or Elisa, had the perfect alias, all that was left to do was gather up her seven-year-old daughter. She couldn't bring her five-year-old son because he had cerebral palsy, and taking him on the run wasn't going to be ideal. In the middle of the night, on March 23rd, Lorraine went into her daughter's room and told her that she was leaving. She asked her daughter if she wanted to come with her, and of course she said yes because she loved her mother. With her daughter on board, Lorraine cut off her ankle monitor and left the state of Florida and stayed on the run for almost a decade. A few months ago, in April of 2022, 2020 released an episode featuring an interview with Lorraine's daughter, who had never spoken to the media before because she'd wanted to forget her past. She talked about being on the run with her mom and said that it was erratic, that they were constantly on the move. She told 2020, when I think about my mom from that time, for her, it was about fun until it was not. Until it was about waking up in the middle of the night and saying, hey, we have to leave because the rent hadn't been paid or she was being evicted. But Lorraine always seemed to find a way. After bouncing around for a while, Lorraine and her daughter wound up in Las Vegas, where she rented an apartment and started managing a chiropractor's office. Seriously, this woman seemed to be able to pull anything off and in the process, managed to fall in love with a man named Ken. Ken was really into outdoorsy things like camping and fishing, and Lorraine pretended that she was into them too. Author Brian Karem wrote that, like a chameleon, Lorraine was really good at pretending to like the same things as her con victims, that they never knew she was faking it. Ken genuinely loved Lorraine and her daughter, and he eventually invited them to move in with him. It wasn't long, though, before she went through a stack of Ken's bills and found a credit card in his name. She started using it and maxed it out in no time. Ken found out the following month when he saw the bill and immediately asked Lorraine to move out. The split didn't last long, though. They got right back together and in 1994 got married. Even though she'd been given a second chance by the man she eventually married, Lorraine kept spending all of Ken's money. Six months into their marriage, he came to terms with the fact that their relationship wasn't healthy. He loved Lorraine and her daughter, but the lying and conniving was too much, so he filed for divorce. Even still, they kept living together because at that point he felt responsible for Lorraine's daughter because he looked at her like she was his own. Around the same time as her split from Ken, Lorraine left the chiropractor's office for one of whoever knows how many excuses. She started looking for a new job, and that is when hers and Larry McNabney's lives intersected. She answered the ad for the secretary position at his law office, and the two began working together. 
A month after Loren started working for Larry, the two started dating. With that, Larry ended his long-term relationship with Cheryl, who was completely blindsided. He and Cheryl had been together for years, it was one of the longest relationships he'd ever had, and he was throwing it away for his secretary, who by the way, was now driving a brand new Jaguar. While Cheryl tried to come to terms with the breakup, Loren and Larry got to know each other better. Larry shared his love of wine with Loren, and in return, Loren shared her love of horses with Larry. He even bought a stable of horses and started riding in competitions just for her. A horse trainer told ABC that from what she could tell, Larry and Loren were a very loving, happy couple. No one knew Loren was conning them like she had conned so many before. In typical con artist fashion, Loren got to work distancing Larry from his family. A victim with no friends or family around is much easier to con. Larry's daughter told Oxygen that Loren put a wedge between them and that she wasn't allowed to call or see him. That being said, she told Dateline that she didn't want to get in the way of her dad's happiness, so she didn't confront him about how she was feeling about his new girlfriend. She could tell that he loved her. Larry's daughter wasn't the only person with concerns about his relationship. There were several red flags, one being that Loren wasn't forthcoming about the details of her past. Attorney Tom Mitchell told Oxygen, You'd ask her where she went to high school and pretty soon she'd be talking about skiing. Something wasn't right. Another red flag was that Larry had started drinking again. His ex-girlfriend Cheryl told author Brian Karem that she found out that Loren was encouraging Larry to drink. She wasn't sure why at the time, but knowing what she knows now, she thinks that Larry was probably easier to con when he was drunk. While all of this was going on and Loren was taking over Larry's life, both work and personal, Loren's daughter was still living with her ex-husband Ken. One weekend in late 1995, Ken had to go on a trip, so he let Loren know that he couldn't watch her daughter. Loren said it wasn't a problem so long as he could take her to the airport and get her onto a flight to Nevada. Thinking it was just a weekend trip, Ken packed a weekend's worth of clothes for her and planned to get her back in a few days. But that never happened. When Ken got back from his trip, Loren told him that neither she nor her daughter would be going back to his house. Instead, they'd be living with Larry full time. With that, Ken packed up all of Loren and her daughter's things and dropped them off at Larry's office. While Ken missed Loren's daughter, he was glad to have her out of his life. Loren continued running her con on Larry, who was too enamored with her to realize what was happening. In December of 1995, his firm was audited, and the audit revealed that Loren had embezzled $74,000 from a trust account Larry had set up for a client. Even though Loren was the one who'd stolen the money, it was Larry's firm, so he was the one who was held responsible. He took a plea deal where he was reprimanded publicly, had to pay the cost of the disciplinary actions, pay back the embezzled money, and take two hours of legal ethics education. On top of that, the deal required that Loren no longer serve as a signatory on any trust accounts in the state of Nevada. Throughout all of that, Larry stayed with Loren. Her grip on him was that strong, and even he knew that she had a hold on him. Larry's friend told Dateline that Larry had confided in him that he didn't know who his wife truly was. He didn't even know if Elisa was her real name. Frankly, he didn't know if anything she said about herself was true at all. According to Dateline, Larry told his friend that he had to hide his wallet because Loren was stealing money from it. 
Despite all of that, on January 6, 1996, Larry and Loren got married. Since Loren wasn't legally allowed to be a signatory on any of Larry's law firm accounts, the McNabneys moved to Sacramento, California, where Larry was also licensed to practice. There, Larry opened a new firm and he tried his best to stay sober, despite Loren's encouragement to keep drinking. Not long after the firm opened, Larry placed an ad in the newspaper for another part-time legal secretary. A woman named Sarah got the job. After Sarah was hired, she and Loren became besties. They started doing everything together when they weren't at work. They were at horse shows, going on shopping sprees, at Larry's expense, of course, and so on and so forth. Loren and Sarah were so close that some people actually thought they were in a relationship. While Loren loved Sarah, Larry did not, and the feeling was mutual. Author Brian Karem wrote that Larry felt like Sarah was horning her way into his life and he wanted it to stop. He didn't want to fire her, though, because he was afraid of Loren's reaction. Larry wasn't the only one who didn't like Sarah, though. In fact, several people told Karem that Sarah dominated Loren in their friendship. They thought Sarah was controlling and influencing Loren. Some people even said Sarah bragged that she was conning Loren. So there's a plot twist. Getting closer to Sarah, Loren told her that Larry drank too much and was abusing her. Loren's daughter told 2020 that she witnessed Larry physically abuse her mom. She said that Loren left Larry at one point but went back because, according to her, he threatened to turn her in for outstanding warrants, adding that her mom tried to leave a couple of times, but that he would track them down and said if Loren didn't agree to come back home with him, he would kill them and then kill himself. Loren's daughter said that the abuse got so bad that in 2001, her mom sent her away to Maine to train horses. She told 2020 that Larry was going off the rails. He was losing control of himself. I knew it got really bad when my mom looked at me and said, oh, I got you a job training horses in Maine. It should be noted here that authorities never found any evidence of abuse and all of Larry's children and wives said he never laid a hand on them. The only people who have said Larry was abusive is Loren, her daughter, and Sarah. That doesn't mean the allegations aren't true. They've just never been proven in court. On September 10, 2001, Larry, Loren, and Sarah all attended a quarter horse show together in Los Angeles. While there, several people noticed that Larry was acting odd, almost like he was really, really drunk, which was strange considering the fact that Larry had been actively trying to stay away from alcohol. Before the day was over, he wound up collapsing, but people just chalked it up to the assumed alcohol. The following day, September 11th, 2001, Loren and Sarah were seen pushing Larry around in a wheelchair, and that was the last time Larry was ever seen alive. Back at home in Sacramento, whenever a family member or friend would ask where Larry was, Loren would say he was too sick to see anyone. And though he wasn't around anymore, Loren kept Larry's firm open and running. She even started negotiating with lawyers and spending money that came in from his clients that Larry had gotten settlements for. On top of that, Loren even took it upon herself to hire two new employees, a woman named Ginger and her own daughter who had come back from Maine. When she asked where Larry was, Loren told her that she and Larry had separated and that Larry was now in a religious cult. You cannot make this shit up. 
Though Loren was telling her daughter that Larry had run off to join a cult, she was telling a completely different story to Larry's clients, a simple one that he was out of town making court appearances. According to the San Francisco Gate, a month after Larry was last seen, Loren changed up her story again. That Larry had moved away and filed for divorce, that he was on vacation in Puerto Rico, that he was in a rehab in Florida, and of course, the age-old cult story. Larry's children didn't believe her. His daughter told Oxygen, What was strange to us was the length of time that she was saying dad was gone, that he was in places he wouldn't have been. Larry's daughter went as far as to hire a private investigator to find her father, but he was nowhere to be found. In the two months between September and late November of 2001, Loren lost 40 pounds, made her hair a bit more blonde, and started dressing younger. She also sold a portion of Larry's assets worth half a million dollars and gave away his personal belongings. Even with all of that money, Loren let the payments fall behind on the law office, so she had to start running the firm from the house. By the end of November, Larry was reported missing. And by who? None other than Loren's new hire, Ginger. She'd thought it was suspicious that she'd never met the owner of the firm and felt like Loren and Sarah weren't being truthful about where he was. According to author Brian Karem, Ginger said that Loren and Sarah spent all of Larry's money, that Sarah had basically moved into the house, and that she and Loren were sleeping in the same bed. They'd even cleared out Larry's closet in his side of the master bedroom so Sarah could put her stuff there. Initially, police didn't think too much of Larry's disappearance. Author Brian Karem wrote that more than one person had been complaining that Larry owed them money, clients, bill collectors, etc., and officers figured that he'd probably run off in an effort to avoid paying. However, a month and a half later, in January of 2002, Larry's son also reported him missing. With two people coming to tell them about Larry's disappearance, police called Loren to see if they could talk to her about it, and shit got real really fast. She packed her bags and told everyone that she was going to a horse show in Arizona. She also packed a bunch of her stuff in a horse trailer and then hired someone to take the trailer there, but that trailer never went anywhere. Ginger had tipped off the police of what Lauren was up to, and they made sure that that trailer didn't move. That day, Loren was seen leaving town in a new red Jaguar, taking her daughter with her. A few days after Loren went on the run, police talked to Sarah. According to Oxygen, she told them that she hadn't seen Larry since September and that Loren had become erratic after he left town. She said Loren stopped coming into the office daily and that she kept changing her explanation about where Larry was. She let police know that she'd also seen Loren sign Larry's name on some checks, but figured Loren was just trying to keep the firm running. Moving along with their conversation, Sarah told officers that right after the new year, Loren had mentioned that she planned on going to Arizona for a horse show in mid-January. Because Larry was gone, Loren invited Sarah to tag along and told her that her plane ticket was all paid for. But when Sarah got to the airport on January 12th, she learned that it wasn't and called Loren, but according to her, Loren's phone was out of service. Sarah never made it to Arizona and said that she hadn't heard from Loren since. No one seemed to have any idea where Loren or Larry might be, but all of that changed about three weeks later.
On February 5th of 2002, employees at a California vineyard saw a leg sticking out of the ground. The leg was Larry's. He was dead and someone had buried him. There weren't any visible signs of injuries, but an autopsy showed that Larry had died from an overdose of horse tranquilizers and he had been dead for months. But his body wasn't as decomposed as it should have been for someone who had most likely died in September when he was last seen alive. It was obvious to law enforcement that Larry's body had been kept cold until right before he was taken to the vineyard. After finding Larry's body, investigators spoke with Larry and Loren's friends and family, many of whom brought up suspicious things Loren had done. One of the most damning statements came from a man named Evan, who was an acquaintance from the horse show scene. According to Oxygen, Evan told police that while they were at a horse show, Loren asked if you could kill with horse tranquilizers. He asked if she meant kill a horse, and she came back with, no, a person. Investigators continued their search for Loren, but again couldn't find her. She'd driven her daughter all over the country, her daughter telling 2020 that they picked towns based on tourism because it was easier to blend in. Her daughter said that even at that point, she still had no idea what had and was happening back in Sacramento. She told the show that it was at that moment that she realized her entire life was going to be about protecting her mom from whatever was chasing her. Loren and her daughter eventually settled in Destin, Florida and changed their names. Loren changed her appearance yet again by cutting her hair short and dyeing it brown. She'd lost so much weight that she had gone from a size 10 to a size 3. She deepened her voice and even consulted a plastic surgeon about altering her face. Ready to start a new life, Loren took a job as a waitress at an upscale restaurant and as a clerk in, yes, another law office. While Loren was starting her new life, investigators in California went to search Larry's office. When they got there, it was empty. However, the horse trailer full of Loren's things was still there. They went inside and looked around trying to find anything that could help them figure out what happened to Larry. And there it was. A file with the name Loren Renee Sims Jordan. Not Elisa. They looked up the name and found that 113-page-long criminal record. A warrant was issued for Loren's arrest. Authorities knew that with Loren's long list of aliases, they needed as much help as possible tracking her down. So investigators went to Loren's ex-husband, Ken, to see if he had any helpful information. But Ken was surprised by the fact that his ex-wife's name was really Loren, because she had gone by Elizabeth Barash, or Elisa, when she was married to him, just like she had with Larry. Now that they had one of her most recent aliases, they looked up the address on file for Elizabeth Barash and went to visit her in West Palm Beach, Florida. Instead of finding Loren, they found the real Elizabeth, the woman she'd once shared a jail cell with. The real Elizabeth told investigators all about Loren Sims Jordan. Doing everything they could to track her down, investigators went to visit Loren's parents in Brooksville. Because the Sims hadn't seen their daughter in almost 10 years, they weren't able to give them much information, but a break in the case was just around the corner, and it was Loren's greed that was going to get her caught. Not knowing Loren's real history, her new boss at that upscale restaurant, a man named Jonathan, 
contacted authorities to report that she had used his credit card. After using his card, he went to visit Loren's other employer at the law firm and told them what Lauren had done. While there, the law office went and checked out the social security number she had given them and found out that it was for a man. Loren was at work while all of this was happening and sensed that something was up, so she left early, telling her co-workers that she was going to the doctor. What Loren didn't know was that her managers had contacted the police and given them the VIN number to her Jaguar. Instead of going to the doctor, Loren called a guy she had been seeing named Robert and asked if he wanted to go out. They went out on a date and she stayed the night at his house. The next morning, when Robert woke up, he found that $600 and his truck were missing and a note from Loren saying that she'd bring the truck back in a few days. Fortunately for him, she did leave her Jaguar so he wasn't totally out of a mode of transportation. On March 15th, police tracked down Loren's Jaguar and were following the car when it turned into a parking lot. Officers pulled it over, but as they approached the driver's side door, they realized that it wasn't her. It was Robert, and he explained that he was driving the Jaguar because Loren had taken his truck. Police were now on the lookout for Robert's truck. Three days later, Loren started to panic that authorities were going to find her, so she picked her daughter up in Robert's truck and told her that they were moving to Charleston, South Carolina. But finally, her daughter said no. She had had enough of their life on the run. She later told 2020, I just felt resigned. I'm just a non-person, a non-person. I exist, but I'm not really me. That is when Loren finally told her daughter what had really happened to Larry. Loren's version of events was that one day she decided to tell Sarah what was going on in her life and that Sarah told Loren that there was only one thing she could do, kill Larry. So that's what she says they did. In September of 2001, Larry and Loren attended a horse show in Los Angeles. Like she had many times before, Sarah went with them. On the 9th, she said that Larry passed out because he'd used some horse tranquilizer for fun and that Sarah then suggested that they give him more, a fatal dose. While Larry was asleep, 2020 reports that in Loren's version of events, she and Sarah took turns squirting more tranquilizer into Larry's mouth, but he didn't die. He woke up on September 10th, showed his horse, and went back to bed. Later, when Sarah and Loren found him, they thought for sure he was dead, so Sarah pushed him, but Larry wasn't dead. He couldn't walk, so according to Dateline, the two of them went down to the street and rented a wheelchair. They put Larry in the wheelchair, transported him to the backseat of a truck, then took off, hoping he'd die on the drive. As the story goes, Sarah and Loren stopped in Yosemite to bury Larry. Sarah even started digging a hole, but Larry was still alive. Loren decided that they shouldn't bury him unless he was dead, so they started driving around thinking he would die along the way, but he didn't. They wound up taking him back to the house, and once they got there, Larry told them that he wanted to sleep. When Sarah and Loren woke up the next morning, Larry was dead. Dateline reports that they wrapped his body in a sheet, put duct tape around him, then took his body into the garage. They removed all the wine and racks out of the refrigerator in the garage and then put his body in there until they could come up with a plan. 
In time, Sarah and Loren put Larry in the trunk of the car and then drove to a Las Vegas hotel. According to Dateline, Sarah stayed at the hotel with Larry's body while Loren went out scouting for a burial spot. The show reports that she tried to dig a hole, but the ground was too hard, so once again drove back to California with Larry. The next day at 4 a.m., Loren took Larry's body to the vineyard, dug a hole, and buried him. After confessing everything to her daughter, Loren dropped her off at home and drove away. She was worried that her mom might hurt herself, so according to that Dateline episode, she called the police and gave them a description of Robert's truck. Officers located the truck abandoned at a Winn-Dixie near the beach, and when they looked around the area, found Loren sitting in a chair. She didn't put up a fight, she just told officers, I'm the one you're looking for. Once in police custody, Loren was extradited to California where she was charged with first-degree murder. Her daughter went on to live with her grandparents, whom she hadn't seen in almost a decade. According to Dateline, when investigators interviewed Loren, she confessed to killing Larry. She claimed that Larry was a drinker, drug user, and abusive husband. After detailing the murder, investigators asked how deep she dug the hole, and Loren's response was, not deep enough, obviously. After hearing what Loren had to say, police also arrested Sarah, but her version of events was much different than Loren's. Dateline reports that she told investigators that she wouldn't deny that she and Loren had a conversation about Larry being abusive and that she had said Loren should kill Larry. However, she said she never thought Loren would actually do it. When it came down to details, Sarah told investigators that it was Loren alone who gave Larry the tranquilizer and that it was Loren who directed Sarah to bury Larry in Yosemite even though he was still alive. According to Dateline, Sarah told Loren she didn't want to do it. In fact, according to Sarah, when she realized Larry was dead, she told Loren they needed to call the police, but that Loren told her, if you call the police, you'll be sorry you did. Sarah told investigators that she never went to them because she was scared she'd end up dead. In the end, investigators didn't believe Sarah's story and she too was charged with first-degree murder. Sarah and Loren both pled not guilty to their charges, but only one of them went to trial. On March 31st, Loren was found dead in her jail cell. She had hung herself. RecordNet reports that Loren left behind a suicide note for her attorney, and the note was put into an envelope, torn into four pieces, placed inside a sandwich wrapper, then hidden in the corner of her cell. In the note, Loren wrote that the first time Larry hit her was on July 2nd, 1996. She said she immediately called her friend and told her about it. It's unclear who that friend was since her name was blacked out by officials, but we know that according to the letter, that friend worked at the firm. However, it was not Sarah. Loren told her friend that when Larry hit her, he always made sure the bruises could be hidden. She also said that when Larry started disappearing on drunken binges, that friend would drive Loren around to look for him. When Larry found out that Loren had told her friend about the abuse, she says he fired her. 
According to the letter on RecordNet, Lorenz stated that outside of herself, Larry had also threatened her daughter. She wrote that in her heart, she believes that by killing Larry, she saved her daughter from him. She said she felt lucky that Larry didn't hurt her daughter or follow through on his threats. After describing the abuse she suffered, Lorraine wrote to her attorney saying, I think we both know that it doesn't matter what kind of man Larry was. We murdered him. Of course, I should spend the rest of my life in prison. Sarah should too. I wish I could change what happened, but I can't. She also wrote, I never fit the mold. The fact that my family even acknowledges me is amazing. I am not good like they are. I don't have that in me. I don't know why, and I don't know if I ever did. I just know I have always been a disappointment to them. I hope by bringing my daughter home, I tried to make them proud. In the note, Loren asked her attorney to sue the Hernando County Jail for not preventing her suicide, asking that whatever money was paid out in the lawsuit go to her children. She also wrote, I'm not strong enough to face all of this. I have tried to dig deep inside myself and it isn't working. There is nothing left. I spent so many years trying to be strong, I just feel empty. For the record, I can't find any record of the jail being sued because of Loren's suicide. Loren's daughter was devastated by her mother's death. She told 2020 that her mom was a victim of domestic violence and that you never have to stay in a situation that you don't feel safe, a situation that you question. You have a right to feel safe and you have a right to whatever future you're willing to make. On January 16th of 2003, Sarah's trial began. The prosecution's theory was that Sarah was the mastermind behind killing Larry. That Sarah didn't like Larry, she thought he was full of himself, and Larry didn't like Sarah. But Sarah and Larry both loved Loren, that they were in a love triangle. They presented that Sarah was enjoying a very fancy life with Loren, but Larry was getting in the way, and theorized that two days before he was killed, Larry told Sarah he was going to fire her and that that was her motive. The prosecution told the jury that Loren was capable of evil and Sarah participated with eyes wide open, that Sarah was willing to help and had become closer to Loren after the murder. Others agreed that Sarah wanted Loren all to herself. Larry's son told author Brian Karam, I really think Sarah was the biggest part of the murder. I saw Dad and Loren together before Sarah came around. They laughed together and had fun. I believe Loren really loved my dad. There's no way you could say they didn't love each other. Larry's daughter added, If Loren hadn't met Sarah, my dad would be alive today. Sarah's defense was that Loren was bored with Larry, so she alone decided to kill him. Loren then manipulated Sarah to help her cover up the murder. Along with everything else, the defense told the jury that there was no DNA, no fingerprints, no trace evidence, or eyewitnesses to corroborate what the prosecution said happened. Their whole case was circumstantial. On March 19th, after deliberating for four days, the jury found Sarah guilty. She was found guilty of voluntary manslaughter and accessory to murder. She was acquitted of first-degree murder. Sarah was sentenced to 11 years in prison, and though none of her appeals were successful, she was released from prison in August of 2011 at 31 years old. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Larry's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern where you go live with me and we talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. 
To listen ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, or for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life, for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month, like today. All your episodes are ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch, and of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you a missing persons episode on Thursday in a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. For an even more detailed, in-depth look into Larry's case, check out Brian Karam's book, Marked for Death. I found it on Kindle for only $6.99, and some libraries near me had copies as well. There's also a 2020 in Dateline episode.